0: And welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Working Girl with the incredible Lane Moore. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Working Girl is, of course, a 1988 American romantic comedy drama film directed by Mike Nichols, written by Kevin Wade and starring Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver and Melanie Griffith. Its plot follows an ambitious secretary from Staten Island who takes over her new boss's role while the boss is laid up with a broken leg. And Lane, Lane Moore is an American stand-up comedian, author, writer, director, actor, singer, songwriter, et cetera, et cetera. Lane has done it all. I love Lane's work so much. Lane wrote a book called How to Be Alone. I read this book at a time when I needed to read a book called How to Be Alone. And then without exaggeration, I gave this out to at least a dozen people. I think this book is tremendous. I think everyone should read it. It's about one of our primary issues, which is not knowing how to just be with ourselves. It's so good. It's so good. This is kind of a rare setup. We don't really uh, bring people on to talk about movies they have not seen. Usually we have people talking about movies that they have seen and that they have a deep, you know, attachment to or a, a dynamic relationship with. In this case, we just wanted Lane on. We were talking about fall movies. Sarah had suggested we do Working Girl. I asked Lane if that would be cool. And I love this conversation. We have an incredible conversation about this movie. An incredible conversation about a movie that says a lot and asks people to say a lot about it. So yeah, I'm very happy that we finally have Lane on the show. You Are Good is made possible with your support, by the way. Did you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support? Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or supports us via Apple subscriptions. You make this show possible. You pay for more than 90% of our bills. This is how we do the whole thing. This is how we artists and musicians and writers and photographers and whatever, whatever. This is how we are able to make a living and do the things that we love. Thank you for helping to make that possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You get bonus episodes in return for that support because, you know, we appreciate you and uh, bonus episodes are fun. We have one about Home for the Holidays coming out next week just in time for the kickoff of whatever we call from Thanksgiving to New Year's. We'll be talking about Home for the Holidays. Uh, It'll be great. It'll be good for your ears. So look out for that. And thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon and on Apple subscriptions. Oh, and one other thing, we make playlists that are inspired by the conversations about these movies. We put them out for each episode. You can find it linked in the show notes. You can find the songs that come into our brains and our hearts when we think about this very conversation all right that's it from me for now how are how are you doing i hope everything is as good as it can be uh you my friend you are good we appreciate your being here thank you for doing this thing with us find us on twitter find us on instagram at you are good pod uh we love hearing from you all right everybody let's do this hello sarah marshall
1: Hello, Alex Steed. Have you seen any movies
0: that showcase Alec Baldwin's chest hair in an unsettling way?
1: I can't believe there are movies with Alec Baldwin in them that don't showcase his chest hair, (laughs) or at least didn't in the 80s. And like, is his chest hair in Malice? It should be. But yes, I saw Working Girl. And oh my God, this movie stars Melanie Griffith. Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver, Alec Baldwin's chest hair, a stuffed wolf in sheep's clothing that he keeps on the bed for some reason, a carton of cigarettes that Tess brings into work after lunch with no explanation, and a very culturally insensitive wedding. Oh, and Kathy Geis from 30 Rock.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Anywho, uh, we're covering, if you have not figured it out by now, based on the title or the description, Working Girl. Typically, we cover movies by asking our guests, uh, what is one of your favorite movies? And then we go from there. But one of our guests' favorite autumnal movies we had already covered, which is Practical Magic. And so we have looped in... I cannot say enough great things about this person, their writing, the stuff they put into the world, Lane Moore, to come and watch Working Girl for the first time with us and experience it that way. Oh, wow. Lane. Tell us about you.
2: Uh, Do you want to know about me or how stunned I am by what I just watched last night? (laughs) You first. Let's start with you. Yeah, um, I I wrote a book called How to Be Alone, uh, which was my first book. I'm working on my second book now. Uh, My first book was very much about how to be okay being by yourself, especially if you grew up having a really rough childhood or family life and didn't grow up having the support systems that we're all told that we get from birth or we'll get eventually. And like, not all of us get those and not all of us get them eventually.
0: And I've told people this before. I've told you this before lane. And I don't know if you thought I was blowing smoke. I don't know lane personally, but I read this book and I bought 10 of them and I just gave them to everyone. I knew who needed this, but like, I cannot say enough good things about this book.
1: The believability rating on this story. is
0: I'm a firm believer in this book.
1: It means so much to me.
2: I hear that. I hear that a lot. And I do. I mean, to be to be honest, I do feel like people who read the book, you know, I mean, it's (laughs) it's tough to say because it's the it's the Internet. And you almost never want to say, like, you read this thing of me. You do know me very well. And then they're like, well, I took 86 out of
1: context and now I hate you. And you're like, then you don't Mm -hmm. know me. Come back. (laughs) And I know you so well that I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy.
2: (laughs) So, like, when people read my stuff online or listen to my, or like, you know, read my book or or whatever it is, I'm like, you do know me because there's no, like, secret other me. I don't have any interest <laughs> in being, like, a separate, like, this is a fake me and secretly, like, I don't know how to do that, honestly. Yeah. So,
0: you do. And what is Tinder Live Lynn?
2: Yeah, I uh, I do a comedy show called Tinder Live. I created it years and years ago because like when Tinder was really like first coming out because the first time I went on Tinder and this is for all dating apps because sometimes people are like, what about Hinge? And I'm like, well, that came out like two years later. So it's, it's, it's not that it's so
1: much different or it's not applicable. And it's like very different because it's yellow or whatever. <laughs> right, or whatever Bumble's yellow, is. so Bumble's different. Yellow. Hinge is slightly blue. <laughs> you got to think
2: about the major differences. But the second I went on it, I was like, oh, this is Chaos, Like the men's profile specifically, women's profiles, like not as chaotic, but men's profiles, so chaotic. The yelling, the fish, the like, don't be fat. Like, wow, wow, you had 20 characters and that's where you went first. Great. Yeah.
1: You're like, what's the closest wild animal and how can I photograph myself holding it or pointing to it?
2: (laughs) Even at its best, even the ones that are just funny and not hateful. I was like, oh, the potential for this to be like. On a big projector screen, we swipe live. We're having the audience choose whether I swipe right or left. I'm very proud that it's such a kind show. If people haven't seen it, it's so kind because Mm. it doesn't need to be mean. I think that's like, you know, sometimes people who who come to see the show, they're like, I thought it was going to be this bloodbath. And I was like, no, we just swipe right on everyone you would never swipe right on. Like, we just go into the (laughs) belly of the beast and we're like, oh, this like Hmm. 65-year-old guy golfing at Mar-a-Lago who says he hates feminists and misspelled feminist, we talk to him. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And just making something really funny. And then, I mean, to your accidental question, I do play a character on Tinder Life who's basically... Very young, very horny, very drunk. I think she lost probably three-fourths of her brain in some kind of accident. (laughs) But the types of men we swipe on love her. Great, great. Because she's just like a caricature of what I think a lot of guys want, which is like, what, I don't know how to spell or math, but I want sex with you. What? Explain (laughs) anime to me, and they love her.
0: (laughs) They love her. It's so fascinating that like any man confronted with that is like, this can't possibly be a bit. Like,
1: (laughs) why would it be a bit when it's never been a bit before?
0: (laughs) All right. So I look forward to getting more into both your thoughts and insights, particularly in this arena, particularly with regard to this movie. But first. Let's have Sarah tore us through the wonder that is Working Girl, Mike Nichols, Working Girl, mm-hmm. Melanie Griffiths, Working Girl. Let's do it, Sarah. It's
1: not Mike Pennies. <laughs> nope. It's Mike Nichols. He's five times good. It sure as is.
0: <laughs> well done.
1: <laughs> Working Girl is a movie that I have been watching since I was probably 15, And every time I watch it now as an adult, I find a new thing to find troubling. (laughs) And I also love it so much. And it's on my like top five basic movies done in a really smart way, I guess. And also... It's an amazing document of its time, which, as I said before, is the moment at which I entered the world and what a world it was. (laughs) We open with a shot that I like to think took a chunk of the budget where we start looking at the face of the Statue of Liberty and then move through the harbor. I don't even know what harbor and track the Staten Island Ferry heading towards the downtown and we hear the Carly Simon theme, Let the River Run, which always gets me. I love it. Totally. And from the beginning, you're like, these people are going to work on Wall Street. They're going to go to their job at Stratton Oakmont. This is not inspirational. (laughs) But it feels inspirational.
0: This is the prequel to Wolf of Wall Street. It
1: feels right because they're just like, yeah, this is the American dream. And you're like, and crushing the American (laughs) dream, but sure. You're the ones who are making it impossible for everybody else, it turns out. But go off, Queen. So there has to be a cut, but you never notice it. We go in through the window of the Staten Island Ferry and see... Tess McGill, played by Melanie Griffith, and her best friend, Cynthia, played by Joan Cusack, and I think an Oscar-nominated role. It was, yeah, for Best Supporting Actress. I looked it up. It is Tess's 30th birthday. Cynthia's singing to her with a little hostess cupcake with candles in it. And then we very quickly establish her as, like, she's a Staten Island striver. She's taken night classes. She's taken speech classes. She's hustling to her job, sharing a freaking desk with Oliver (laughs) Platt wearing her cute little, you know, sneaks. Who has always been a
2: creep. I feel like like even when he was like 13 years old, there was always something a little off. Like he played
1: such a he plays such a good creep forever. Yeah. So we established Tess as someone who is working at some kind of a like, you know, looks like kind of a dingy, small, whatever the fuck these companies are called. I don't care. Brokerage firm.
0: That's really where it feels the most like out of the first 20% of Wolf of Wall Street. Like that is like where it feels like they're technically in finance.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure that they are in finance. Like, cause to me the level of fucked up in this, in that workplace doesn't suggest that they're like not doing their jobs. It's just like, you got to throw a few women under the wheels every day.
0: Feed the beast.
1: (laughs) She's trying to get ahead and bring her ideas to the guys that she works for and with, and they just consistently ignore her because not only is she a woman, but she's a bimbo mm. and who could ever love a bimbo?
2: I wish that was the title of this movie, like just a
1: little bit. I'm surprised I didn't call it Secretary.
2: Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> that came later and a lot yeah. more
1: avert. I'm sure that was in the running. No, I, yeah, and um and so she got passed over for this company apprenticeship thing, but Oliver Platt is like Hey, we got a friend, Bob and Arbitrage, who's looking for an assistant. And then she has a meeting with Bob, Speck, and Arbitrage, who is Kevin Spacey.
0: This movie's loaded with creeps, real and farcical. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And also, <laughs> and they put in, you know, like there's this
2: moment where she's like, Are you sure it's not another setup? Are you sure this is not mm-hmm. another setup? Right. And you oh, know they yeah, know. Totally. Right. And they were like, Oh my God, no, no, no. It's a real job. He needs a real secretary. And it's like Kevin Spacey being just
1: so, so much creepier now watching it looking back too. Yeah,
2: absolutely. of course.
1: Yeah. As, as are all his roles, even the normal ones. Not that I can think of even Many, one of yeah. them. <laughs> even his rom-coms. Yeah, exactly. The mean
0: boss, the serial killer, the the pedophile dad.
2: (laughs) It's so crazy, those roles, because I like I've known so many people who like, you know, I knew them to be the person that they played on stage or in movies or whatever. And it was like, no, they're like that. But the suspension of disbelief that so many people give where they're like, no, 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 he's just really good at playing this like creepy pedophile guy. And you're like, why would he be good at that what kind of person is really good at that i'm worried how did you get really good at i wouldn't be really good at that i'm just saying but yeah
1: Yeah, so she meets with Bob Speck in arbitrage, and it's a meeting that they have to have in a limo while drinking champagne and doing cocaine and watching a porno, which, by the way, when they showed this movie on TV, which is how I first watched it the first 75 times, they cut out the porno, they cut out, like, anything involving nudity. So it's, like, actually very hard to understand why the plot points happen. You're like, wow, she just walked out on Alec Baldwin for no reason. (laughs) So... It's obviously a setup. It's obviously just one of those things. And she does what women in movies do and what I suspect women in life don't do nearly as much as I was raised to think that we did where you're like, fuck off, Bob. And you spray him with his own champagne and get out of the car and just leave. Just walk away.
2: Yeah, that would be so, so great. And you don't realize exactly that that's like wish fulfillment. Yeah. That's like what you do. Like after 10 years of trauma therapy, you're like, I wish I'd been like, Fuck off, Bob, and like gotten out on the West yeah. Side Highway in the rain, and just been like, oh well, like <laughs> yeah, and then went on to achieve my dreams. Like no, you <laughs> skip some steps.
1: That would be a good like fan fiction uh, where it's like she hits her head, and then the rest of the movie is a fantasy, and then she wakes up at urgent care with Bob from Arbitrage. <laughs> But it doesn't do that. So, (laughs) So, yeah, she gets out. She goes back to work. She types onto the, like, stock tape ticker thing that goes around the ceiling. Oliver Platt is a sleazoid pimp with a tiny little dick. (laughs) I love how long that is. (laughs)
0: Totally. I love, like, tiny little dick is such a funny phrase. I love it.
1: It's someone who isn't normally crude and isn't super creative in this area.
0: Yeah, totally. She just pulled what she could.
1: The meanest thing she could think of. Tiny little dick. We've seen her go home to a surprise birthday party the night before with her boyfriend, Alec Baldwin, who is suggestively... Sitting in bed next to a wolf in sheep's clothing stuffed animal. I cannot stress this enough.
0: He doesn't even wear sheep's clothing. Like, that's the funny thing. Right. Like, this guy's just a wolf.
1: He's just fully a wolf. He's like, hey, I'm a wolf. And now she comes home to find one of my favorite scenes where he's like just in full flagrante delicto like fully naked fully having sex it literally looks like a scene from a porn like you can almost see where it
2: goes in and i am not being crass like i literally look to be like can i see it yeah i think i can see it like i've never seen a movie that was like nominated for an oscar have have a scene that was so much like i feel like i can see it happening i love it
1: they're like let's have sex in this brightly lit room that shook me up
2: I was not expecting that because so many movie <laughs> scenes are just like she's of course having sex somehow through her underwear like they they like yes. take these like <laughs> modesty cheats and that one was like oh that must have been an awkward day for the intimacy coordinator who was not there
1: <laughs> did they even have intimacy coordinators in the 80s or was it just like just throw on some flesh colored panties and and hump your this guy you just met just g- get in there
2: I don't even either one of them had panties that's how much you saw and that's what I mean I'm just like they definitely did not have that there it was like you cool with being fully nude and just like being right up against his junk right it's the scene requires it
0: mike nichols was like we'll only have essential people on set like 20 25 guys like it'll be just it'll be totally
1: weird just a bunch of guys eating hoagies just take your clothes (laughs) off it's fine and
2: so unnecessary like we get like usually it's like they show it from behind i'm so obsessed with this scene because it was so (laughs) abrasive that's the only like word i can (laughs) use to describe that yeah
1: And then we get possibly Alec Baldwin's greatest line in a movie of all time edging even ahead of the one in Malice, where he says, I am never sick at sea, because he's quoting Gilbert and Sullivan to show that he's evil. Tess, this is not what it looks like. I mean, it is what it looks like, but I can explain. (laughs) And then uh, (laughs) Melanie Griffith storms out reasonably, and then all of her friends spend the rest of the movie talking about how awful she's being for not giving Alec Baldwin more of a chance by agreeing to marry him the next time she sees him. Incredible.
2: Yeah. So like you walked out on him without even letting him explain. I'm like, we saw, I swear I've watched, I've watched some far more like hardcore stuff that I did not see that much. Like she walked in on that. She walked in on that and they're like, give him a shot. He's a good guy. He put his penis in another lady. What? So well, Staten Island rules are different. Like, yeah, that's not that's literally how she talks, by the way. For anyone who hasn't seen it, I'm not even doing a comical version of it. It's so over the top. Her accent. It's beautiful.
0: I'm pretty sure this was at the height of Mike Nichols crack addiction. So (laughs) I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But, you know, he was like, he was like, let's put it in there. I forgot
1: Mike Nichols did crack. Wait, was he really on crack?
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. He had a heart attack in like 86 that was, I think, cocaine-focused. I think he kept going after and was was like, well, I can smoke crack.
1: Crack goes down so much easier. That
2: explains so much because I don't know that I've seen very many Mike Nichols movies and so many of these lines, but I was so aware that like he was supposed to be like one of the best writers ever, and so many of the the lines in this, I'm like... He wrote that? That was not a first draft. That was not a, we'll put something better in there later. That was like, that's the line.
0: Mike Nichols had a had a wild, uh, from heartburn to wolf. So wolf was like mm-hmm. 1994. I think it was a time. I think it was like a big time for Mike Nichols, personally. <laughs> the only thing I just want to say as an aside to close this Mike Nichols parenthetical is, and this is funny that I can't remember any of these specifics because I read the biography of Mike Nichols last year and it's all I could remember when we weren't covering. Michael Nichols movies, but the person tying it together in this movie, and I feel like this is part of the payoff, is what happened in this movie is one of his close friends that convinced him he needed to go check himself into treatment was Carly Simon.
1: No, oh, Carly, that's nice.
0: Yeah, he's like, you want to write the theme for a movie? Thanks for saving my life.
1: <laughs> and what a theme she wrote! It's a good theme.
0: It's like the Arthur theme. It's like back when you could just have a big theme in the middle of a movie.
1: Yes. So Tess storms out and none of her friends on Staten Island think that this is really makes sense as a response. And uh, without meaning to, I think this movie is really about how as a woman historically in America, the lesson you learn very early is that like men are all going to be dysfunctional in various ways and they're all going to fuck you over. And you have to just like find the one that fucks you over in the way you're like the most okay with or so you at least believe and that that's your only choice. Those are the only choices you can make. So we establish her. We have her birthday party. She has a horrible meeting with Bob and Arbitrage. She comes back to work and says that Oliver Platt has this tiny little dick. She gets fired. She goes to an employment agency where Olympia Dukakis helps her find a new job at the firm of Petty Marsh, where Sigourney Weaver has just come down from Boston. And Sigourney Weaver, who has just moved into town, She's Sigourney Weaver. She's using her powers for evil in this film. There's kind of a whole Cinderella theme running through it. And she's kind of opens by promising equality to some extent, and then is incredibly patronizing and condescending and awful. I do think that one of the true lessons of this movie as well, that it knows it's telling us is that men and male dominated industries are often horrible but the women can be worse. Yeah. Which was such a,
2: I think as somebody watching this for the first time, especially I was like, oh wow, this is really, and it it felt like it was doing it in a smart way. And I mean, I I don't know about you, but there were a lot of Mm -hmm. things that I really was like, oh yeah, that has happened. I don't know if I saw it as a kid, if I would have known that, but I think seeing it as a woman who's been in some really male dominated areas and then you're just like, oh, my God, thank God I'm like working with other women. Great. And then you're like, oh, come on. Yeah. Come on. You're going to do this. Why?
0: This is another movie where I thought that I hadn't seen it. And then I saw it I was like, oh, obviously I've seen that. Like, I know everything that happens in this movie. But I was really surprised. By all of that with the Sigourney Weaver character, I was surprised by like how well they handled it. I was surprised by how well they like handled the turn. I was surprised by all of that. The only thing I felt was, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in a bigger way, lacking big time, is that like maybe 90% of the reason Sigourney Weaver is like that, and I only know this through people in my life who have been the Sigourney Weaver in this situation, is they were created by the male workforce.
1: She was also created by preps. So let's not leave that out. Yes,
0: absolutely. Totally. And there's a lot going on culturally at that point, which is great. But yeah, I feel like it's like a lot of women, particularly like if they're in corporate settings, if they are in the significant minority in the workplace, like an expectation to double down on chauvinism is present. We didn't get commentary on that necessarily. Uh, we just talked about her bony ass, but it was still fun.
2: Yeah, exactly. There was only (laughs) so much they were going to be able to do and also probably wouldn't be realistic for her to have that realization or for either one of them. Mm -hmm. I don't think we were at the point culturally, Totally. but even then it sucks because it's like, you can have the knowledge that like, this is still created by patriarchy that still routes back to that, but it doesn't matter because I know like a lot of women who've experienced that, like even if those women later are like, oh my God, like that happened because it's created by patriarchy. Like, I don't think those women are still sending out a lot of apologies Mm -hmm. years later.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Like, and that'd be cool if they did. It'd be cool if, you know, we got to hear from some of those women who were like, oh, hey, I actively cut you off, you know, in these ways and like stopped you from being able to achieve these things and took your ideas or did all these things like, you know, women or men. But again, like anyone who comes to those realizations of like, oh my God, I played into this hand. I don't know. I feel like you need to you need to go back and repair that because you still did damage. It doesn't matter. It's similar to like, oh, well, I was abused as a kid, so it's OK that I abused my kids. It's like, actually, no. Right. One is true, but there still needs to be an accountability. It's OK that you were damaged in this way, but you still hurt other people. And anytime you take that and push that pain out, there still needs
1: to be accountability, you know?
0: Yeah. Great points.
1: And oh, and we also get uh, Kevin Dunn's sister, Nora.
0: Oh, Yeah. I forgot Nora Dunn was in this.
1: Who's giving uh, Lilith Crane? Yes, <laughs> yes totally. <laughs> okay, so Tess goes to work for Catherine, and she has this great idea that occurs to her one day because she's always like trying to like get an inside edge, like bring her ideas to people in charge who never fucking listen to her. And so, in the Wall Street world of this movie, there is this very important guy named Oren Trask, who's played by Philip Bosco, who many people of my age know as the butler from It Takes Two. Oh, great. In the 80s, there was a consistent need for fancy guy actors, and he was one of them. In another time we would have called him a Trump type figure. But now we won't because I don't know if you've read the news. But anyway, his company is looking to acquire a TV station. They haven't been having any luck. Tess knows about this because it's reported on and I assume the journal and stuff. And it occurs to her that they could get their feet wet by buying a radio station or a radio network. And in a move that I don't fully understand, because I don't know how business works. She working in another company like brings this idea to her boss. Was this or is this a thing where if you work for a completely different company, and you have an idea about what another company you could do, you're like, hey, buy a radio station. Well,
0: sometimes the services your company ultimately provides can help facilitate that deal for whatever oh, reason. Okay. Because like the business specifically that Sigourney Weaver is in is in the facilitation of mergers and acquisitions.
1: Oh my God, of course. Yeah.
0: So that makes sense. I've
1: only seen this movie 30 times. And
0: what I don't fully understand, though, I'm just kind of guessing about like why she has to be working with Harrison Ford in order for this to
1: happen. It's because he's sexy, Alex. That's why
0: it, it perpetually 40 Harrison Ford. I'm not quite sure why that has that. But I assume that their business all also handles like some delicate end of the facilitation of like communications deals. I'm not entirely sure.
2: I think it
1: does. And I think also because he's a man. Yeah. Too. yeah. Like she needs yeah, to have the course. like legitimacy too. Yeah.
0: No doubt. No doubt.
1: I like how this movie never explains that. Like I've been watching it for like 20 years and I never understood that. And I also didn't care very much. I was like, yeah, whatever. Sometimes three people from different companies work together for some reason. I mean,
2: and he basically there is a there is a scene where like because I was having trouble with that, too. And there is a scene where Harrison Ford's like, you're going to do it without me. You need me. I need to be in the room. And like, no one does anything more. there's no explanation of like, you need mm-hmm. me because I know the people at whatever. There's none of that. It's just like, you need me. I need to be in the room. And it is said in such a way where it would be reasonable to assume that it was literally just like a man- Overestimating his contribution to the project.
1: I also like that he's got a little dab of sauce at the corner of his mouth for that entire conversation. That they never bring up!
2: Never bring it up. It was so noticeable that I literally thought like, oh, they're doing a setup where she's like, you got a little something on your thing. And he's going to be like, yeah, that men. was a
1: great melody. <laughs>
2: Thank you. I didn't even know I did one until this moment. And then they move on. They just move on. And you and and he never looks it. away. It's not like the next cut. They've removed it. He's got it. She doesn't say anything. We don't even know.
1: I assume somebody was like freshening that thing up with a Q-tip between shots so okay so tess has this idea that trask can buy a radio station or a network of stations she brings it to Catherine. Catherine's like oh what an interesting idea she doesn't talk like that but it's fun to do that voice (laughs) i'll bring it to jack trainer over at whatever company he works at so she goes off on her skiing holiday where she is going to see her mystery bachelor and she's like yeah, I'm pretty sure he's going to propose. And this is also an iconic scene, in my opinion, where Tess is like, why do you think she's going to propose? Pop the question. And she's like, I've indicated I'm available. I've indicated I'm amenable to an offer. I've cleared the month of June. And I am, after all, me. And she
2: ate <laughs> it up. She ate that scene up. Oh, my God. No, it's
0: yeah. so good.
1: Yeah. Sigourney Weaver is doing kind of like a Billy Zane as Khaled and Hockley type performance which I love.
0: That's really perfect. Just
1: like operatic evil rich person.
0: I had assumed on some level Sigourney Weaver was a nepotism baby.
1: <laughs> she kind of is. I looked it up. She kind of is.
0: And like, I didn't realize until I heard an interview with her a couple of weeks ago, like, She's like her dad invented television, like her dad, like invented (laughs) the modern form. Yeah. Her dad invented like the tonight show her dad, like your show of shows, like good morning America. I think like he created all of the like format that we still endure as like as modern or know to be modern television. And I really like when she's able to channel that in a role. She's not like doing an invention of what she thinks like. A uh, yuppie preppy would be like, she is a yuppie preppy. <laughs> She's able to bring it to the role.
1: <laughs> and she always does to some extent.
0: In a lovely way still.
1: In a very, I think, self-aware
2: way too.
0: Yes, Yes,
2: it's interesting, though, because there's plenty of there's plenty of people who come from that background who I don't think could do it either. So that's it's interesting because no. they don't have that self-awareness about it, I think is what it is.
0: Right. She can really see it and harness it in a really incredible way that I think a lot of people who grew up to your point, Lane, yeah. who grew up like that, like think that maybe it doesn't apply to them, but it very applies to them.
2: Exactly. <laughs> like to be able to hold both parts of just like I come from this and also I know the ridiculousness and I think that a lot of people who come from that are very precious about it and can't see
1: it that way yeah. or see it that way. Sure. Or are no. in this mindset of like, no, it's what life is like. And it's like, oh, is it? <laughs> but what's cool, too, is that like Tess
2: responds to her in this like kind of, you know, really like gutsy move of just be able to be like, what mm-hmm. if he doesn't pop the question? And she's like, oh. Well, of course he's going to. But I was just like, wow, I can't imagine like if I'm talking to my new boss and she's like, yeah, he's going to have the question this weekend. This is going to happen This to be like, what if he doesn't ask you to marry him? He might
1: not like that's, I can't imagine. It was so like, whoa, that's spicy. <laughs> I feel like there's so much about this character that comes down to like speaking softly to get ahead. Mm-hmm. or guess like saying things that you couldn't say if you didn't say them the way you said them Right. in the voice you said them in. That's
2: probably it too. Is It's that kind of like Marilyn Monroe, like you're assuming I'm not very intelligent, so I'm going to say this and it's going to sound like naivete. It's going to sound like I'm genuinely asking. I'm just a little baby. But meanwhile, she's just like, how do you freaking know he's going to ask? But you're not going to expect that from a little baby. It's <laughs> a baby. <laughs>
1: I love that. Yeah. Uh, I love her. Yeah. So Catherine goes off for her pop the question vacation and immediately skis off a fucking cliff. That scene is amazing <laughs> because it
2: comes in. a scene end, we watched. And he's skiing and a rich person skiing and then just like flies. On. I think that scene lasts 30 seconds and they're so powerful. And then also she doesn't just fly off the cliff. You hear, ah, like. <laughs>
1: So. she had a little bit too oh. much confidence on that slope there <laughs>
2: <laughs> and really that's a thread that runs through this movie she had a little bit too much confidence on that slope there it and really that is.
1: scene is
0: so fucking funny that scene it's so funny to your point about like the joke with her is her level of confidence and then seeing it like implode on her a little bit It's so bright and so beautiful and she's wearing that amazing jumpsuit that mirrors the dress. Yeah, she looks so chic. Right. It mirrors the dress she was wearing mm-hmm. earlier when she's like, when they're at that party.
1: And what color is it, Alex? It is red.
0: And it's like, just like her, like little, like her tiny bit of pep on her face. Like she's like going to go seize the day, <laughs> And then in one and a half seconds, fucking screams uncontrollably into the void.
2: <laughs> It is so funny. And you just see the void. And then they're just like, next scene, you get it. Sheepo. And it's like something that I guarantee, you know, <laughs> took up like 1, one of the page. And they were just like, looks hot. Very 80s. Pants, <laughs> screams, broken leg. Like, it was just like,
1: wow. it real, No, and it worked.
0: It's so funny. <laughs> That's so funny. So oh, funny. my God. I love it so much.
1: And then we see her next in the hospital bed where she calls Tess. <laughs> and she's like, oh, Tess. Again, she doesn't sound like that, I know, but I don't care. That's my voice.
2: Was she in the Teddy yet when she was in that scene? I don't remember.
1: I don't think so, because I feel like it would have really popped out at you.
2: <laughs> no, she was in the hospital gown because she says, like, stop looking at my gown. I think
1: that's
2: the <laughs> To the doctor who's like there. Yes.
1: And then later on, she, like, acclimates to hospital life. But <laughs> So she calls Tess, and she's like, Tess, I've broken my leg, and wouldn't you know it, you need to go to my parents' house where I'm staying, and they live in a townhouse, so there's no doorman or neighbors, and the housekeeper is in Barbados for the month, wouldn't you know it, and we haven't found another housekeeper, so you'll be all alone with no one to see you coming and going, I trust you, thanks. You know what's so funny? Okay, so everything you just said, I like got
2: distracted or just dissociated for those like thirty seconds where she's explaining that, and then the next mm-hmm. time I like looked up or I checked my phone or something, and the next time I look up, she's just walking around a house and like <laughs> trying on her makeup and clothes, and I was mm-hmm. like, wait, wait, what did I miss? <laughs> because this doesn't
1: make any sense. Is she just now living at her house? Just a very short scene because they're just, just sewing up some little plot holes with their little needle and thread, and they're like, there you go, it's fixed. Right. Like too abruptly, though, because, yeah, it really was kind of like blink and
2: you miss it. Turn away to check your phone. Next thing you know, she's like becoming her (laughs) and like fully authorized, had the keys, knew the location. And I was wild. Yeah. very easy. If you're a
1: fantastically rich person, you just need to assume that if you let people in your house, they're going to start wearing your clothes and putting on your makeup and assuming your identity. I don't make the rules.
2: And then she takes on her business, you know, whatever her like business identity of like, yeah, I have my boss's job. Like she fully just is like, I'm going to steal your life. Okay,
1: yes. So Tess goes to Catherine's house (laughs) where she can be all alone and she immediately, you know, checks it out, looks at the chandelier, looks at the Andy Warhol or equivalent portrait of Catherine that her parents have, hangs out on her exercise bike and starts listening to Catherine's dictaphone. (laughs) I don't know if it's if a dictaphone is like a specific like looking thing or not. But yeah, it's a dictaphone. So Tess starts listening to Catherine's dictaphone messages which are initially scintillating things like, read those horrible little salt and pepper shakers. What a lovely gift and how lovely of you to think of me so far away. And, you know, but of course, we never really say goodbye to Wellesley. Um. It's really just like
0: beautiful inner workings of waspdom. It's like a wasp dictionary.
1: Yeah, it's the preppy handbook.
0: Exactly. When talking about a tacky gift, here's how you
1: do it.
2: Yeah. That's how she was like studying it. Like you, you saw Tess like studying like waspdom. Mm-hmm. Be like, Oh, this is, this is how you say it. And like she starts repeating words. Like, cause at first I was like, why is she listening to her really boring diary? Like that's just what I kind of thought it was. <laughs> like her really, really, like, I got these. Pepper Shakers, I didn't like them. And then uh, my friend I was watching it with was like, oh, no, I think she's trying to be like, oh, you
1: say it like this. Exactly. They should show her like (laughs) watching a Catherine Hepburn movie. But, you know, this, this movie is already stuffed to the gills. So while listening to these memoranda, she gets to... Catherine leaving a message for herself saying, talk to Jack Trainer about the Trask radio idea. Don't go through Tess about this. And Tess is like, what the fuck? And she goes and looks on Catherine's computer and basically works out that Catherine has stolen her idea and is going to take it to Jack as if it's her own. And so, again, in what we could call a plot hole, but I choose not to. Tess just starts using Catherine's office and assuming her role as boss, and none of the like 30 other women who work on the floor say a single thing about it. Snitches get stitches.
0: They're just like, we're on your side.
1: They're just like, go for it. Which again, such wish fulfillment. Yeah. Or yeah. like just,
2: I don't know, other people in the other offices being like, why are you in here every yeah. day? Like if that happened on Mad Men and like, some, you know, um, whatever, like Peggy was in Don Draper's office every single day. One of the guys would be like, why are you in here every day? Why are you suddenly doing business as Don? Like it would be very, and you just kind of roll with it because you're like, I don't know how she's able to do this. I don't know if it's because like the men in the office were so checked out or the women in the office were so like
1: rooting for her. I don't think there are men on that floor. And then we're we're to assume that all of the secretary type women are in league with each other, which obviously they're not because, again, there would be some like typing pool worker named Mag. Who'd like snitch on her. Right.
0: It happens in nine to five.
1: Yeah, exactly. There'd be a nine to five type situation. There's always things like that where people are like, why wasn't it like
2: this? And you're like, because it's more fun this way.
1: Yeah. And it's nice to believe in this world where like you never have to talk about it. Just all of your dozens of coworkers just... Unanimously agree to do you a solid, <laughs> and kind of jeopardize their own jobs as well. <laughs> that, it would have taken away from the plot to have like one person who was
2: like, "I think this is." And what? Like she gives her hush money. Like I, I, we didn't need that scene. Yeah, who cares? It's fine. it's fine.
1: It doesn't matter. We don't care. Yeah, this movie is great at knowing what we care about, and so she steps into Catherine's office, calls Jack herself, sets up a meeting, and then has her best friend, who is not very supportive. Joan Cusack come over to help her get dressed for this fancy event where she hopes to kind of run into him this evening. So she dresses up in a sparkly dress. She has to take a Valium because it stresses her out to realize that what she's wearing costs $6,000. And it's not even leather.
2: Joan Cusack's hair gets higher and higher over the course of the movie to the point where I don't understand how it's physically possible. It looks like it's going to like a fall like a Jenga tower like I don't know how it's that <laughs> it gets higher and higher I don't know it's it's a
1: miracle yeah maybe there's like skewers in there like they use for really tall cakes or something
2: oh also and then did we, did we are we at the party where she um where Tess cuts her mullet
1: yeah oh yeah <laughs> yes so she had long hair and then we got to talk about where
2: Tess cuts her mullet let's talk
1: about it because I feel like it's very important to you
2: it does <laughs> I know, I'm like holding my chest like it was like a deep personal moment for me and not a movie I watched last night that I really liked. But she she was like, if you want to be taken seriously, gotta have serious hair. It's really so good. I think I want to talk like that for the rest of my life. (laughs) She, you know, she has this like cascading mullet that like a lot of dead ends. I don't know a lot about hair, but a lot of that looks like it could come (laughs) off. You just, it doesn't, it
1: does not look well maintained. That hair has been through the wars. That hair has done its best.
2: (laughs) Right. A lot of bleach, maybe Mm -hmm. not proper conditioning as somebody who was a a platinum blonde for a long time. I feel like I just knew what happened. (laughs) Yeah. And then she finally was just like, you know, Sin, I gotta be taking seriously. I gotta have serious hair. And she's like, you sure? You <laughs> want to call all your great that night? <laughs> oh, and she's like, yep, yeah, I gotta be taken seriously. Can you see what's here? <laughs> and so she like cuts, she cuts the fur in the are like, Quick. and you're like, ooh, makeover montage, but not really. And then they just like go to the next scene where like, it's been blown out into that 80s thing.
1: Just a, a beautiful halo. It was
2: kind of that at certain points um, when Harry met Sally, which is one of my oh, favorite yeah. movies ever. At certain points, Sally had that, that short 80s blown out volume, but also looked very soft
1: hair Looks great. It is. It looks like a beautiful cloud of, like, golden cotton candy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think maybe the reason, like, the deeper reason that hit me so much is because, like, I think there's a part of me, like, because there's that scene, too, with um her boss, Scorny Weaver, where she's just, like... She's like, and I expect you to look a professional way. I expect you to look a certain way. And she's like, okay, well, how do I look now? And she's like, oh, you look impeccable, but I would rethink the jewelry. And she like hides her, hides her arms with her, like all her jewelry. And it's just so oh, yeah. like, so her cutting her hair, even if it's supposed to be empowering, it's that whole thing that like, now we know, you know, people are more conscious of, of like, no, you shouldn't have to look a certain way to be professional. You shouldn't have to like cut your hair to look, like, there isn't one professional look and we don't do this for men. Like, I think I just, it felt kind of sad. Cause I was like, she had her own style and it was kind of sad to watch her be like, no one will take me seriously unless I look the way they need me to look. Like, yeah, it was really heartbreaking.
0: These are all tremendous points, but I just also want to make clear that I love your Melanie Griffith impression because it sounds like Ellen Green in Little Shop of Horrors.
1: Oh, it does. And
0: also your Joan Cusack in this situation sounds like Andrew Dice Clay. So having Andrew <laughs> Dice Clay and Ellen Green have a conversation is a thing that I
1: love. Two lovers <laughs> on the run in my movie. That's what they would play. Joan Cusack,
2: like I kept watching it because she didn't. She's so good at disappearing into roles. That one it was hard for her to disappear into, especially as somebody who had only, who had seen her later roles before this. Right. I was like, oh, they have put every blue eyeshadow on her. <laughs> they like threw it at her and saw what stuck. I think it was hard for her to learn that accent. I just, it was good. I don't, did, did was it a little distracting to you? Like, not that the accent itself, but her doing it. I
1: think it, that you think. can kind of feel the effort involved a little bit. And also, I don't know how much of my yeah. sense of that is affected by the fact that Joan Cusack is like, famously 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 a chicago person <laughs>
2: <laughs> right right she's so famously chicago and i love her chicago accent so much so hearing could be like listen you gotta do what you gotta do like, <laughs> <laughs>
1: What? <laughs> whereas what? for alec baldwin it was just like slipping on a robe he's just like you <laughs> want me to dial up dirtbag 21 percent?" right it's funny to me that alec baldwin on 30 rock was playing someone from Massachusetts. When to me, he's like, yeah, so Long Island, like he is Long Island. But it, it I guess it, it like made sort of sense to people in the way of like making George Costanza Italian yeah. when clearly yeah. he's Jewish and based on Larry David. It's like you know, it's the, it's uh, it's another white dirt bag place, Massachusetts. <laughs> it's fine. He can do it. Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't seen.
2: Many of his 80s roles, I was I was only familiar with his later roles that I was like, wait, what? For a second, I thought maybe it
1: was his brother. (laughs) One of the spares. Right. I was like, is one of the spare ones like (laughs) (laughs) at least for a while, Alec Baldwin was doing like radio narration for like the New York Philharmonic or something like that. Like you'd be listening to a symphony and then you'd be like, that was And I'm Alec Baldwin whispering to you for some reason.
0: I just assumed that it was community service. I assumed that he got into some trouble and he needed to do something for a nonprofit and they just let him do the announcements. And they're
1: like, "Okay, for your community service, you can do something that will get you more attention and prestige. I mean, that does check out. So
2: he really rebranded, though, because I remember, like, I think a lot of his roles in the 90s and, and the way that, like, I had always viewed him. Was this like classic old movie star? And you see him in this movie, and he just looks like yeah, you found him, yeah, under a pile of of pepperoni. Well, <laughs> like, oh, you know, the, like being eaten by a rat. Like he's just like what? Hey, huh? Like he's so chaotic.
0: You find him under a pile of pepperoni.
1: Just <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, him playing a character who like cheats on you. And then is annoyed when you're like not agreeing to marry him. We haven't even gotten to that part. Oh, my God.
2: And then still flirts with you at his wedding or, or, or somewhat. Yeah, some wedding a
1: wedding. Or, anyway. Yeah. OK, I'm, I'm, I swear to God, I'm going to get through the summary. OK, so Tess goes to the businessy, functiony thing with her serious hair and who should spy her. But Harrison Ford, who is finally showing up in this movie like 35 minutes in. I love that we get to construct a whole world. And then he shows up.
0: <laughs> 35 minutes into the movie, one hour into the description of the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, that computes. And this is the thing that bothered me most this time. He's like, hi, Melanie Griffith. I'm just me. Let's not exchange names. I know I know. I have a meeting with you tomorrow, but you don't know who I am. So let's drink tequila. And then that Valium you took earlier will make you kind of pass out. And then he does the thing which I feel like I saw everywhere as a tween kind of around the year 2000. I feel like this was such a well-worn trope by then. And I like to think we see less of it now where like woman passes out, guy takes her to his place, does the honorable thing, puts her to bed, but allows her to wake up thinking that something happened and lets her freak out about that for 12 hours. And then
0: further, like totally. And then like, not just think it, but like, jokes in the direction that that's what happened for a while. I'm like, you couldn't swoop in and clarify
2: because, okay. So like, that is so horrific, but it is preceded by a line that made me question everything I had been told about Mike Nichols. And we Mm -hmm. have to talk about it, which is because she says something to him like, yeah, you wouldn't think I know about business, but I do. He's like, what? And she goes, Oh God. She goes, yeah, I have a head for business and a bad for
1: sin. And it's played! <laughs> it's an iconic line, Lane. It's great writing. It's great.
0: It was shocking.
1: Do you know that that line made its way into the lyrics of Work Hard or Die Trying Girl, the Bob's Burgers working girl slash hard musical? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a great episode. But that's great because I was
2: just like, the fact that he was just like, looked at her like, whoa, yeah. And then like the next scene is her passing out from Valium and not sure what happened. I was like, <laughs> yeah.
1: What a dear, <laughs> and the movie's like it's very romantic to do that. You're going above and beyond,
2: right? And not to go, not to get ahead of ourselves, but like it was very late into the movie where, like, I turned to my friend I was watching with, and I was like, "Are we rooting for them? Because <laughs> there's some messy stuff here. Like, I don't actually feel like they have this like oh, like when Harry met Sally. I'm like, I'm rooting for you to get together, even though this is complicated. But with them,
1: I was like, there's a lot." To unpack. I mean, I like to think that if that happened between Harry and Sally, he wouldn't put her to bed and then undress and also get in bed and sleep beside her all night.
2: Right. And then right. And then he's like, he's like, did, she's like, did anything happen? And he's like, I don't know. You don't know. This
0: might be controversial and I hope that it's not more than it has to be. But like, I've never seen Harrison Ford have chemistry with anybody.
2: Yeah. He does I, – I didn't – and that's kind of what I mean We're like, I don't even necessarily mean, like, the parameters. I just didn't see, like, a ton of chemistry between them. I understood what was being right. told to me. I understood that, like, oh, they're working together. They're mm-hmm. enjoying it. But I didn't see it. Like, I, I – I saw it, I guess, on the page, but I didn't yeah, see
0: it on I screen. feel screen. And also just the logistics of the lead up. Like, obviously, like I, I'm like when I see them in the end, like getting their their lunch together. And even that's like weirdly patronizing in a strange way. But like, I like that it happens. But like in the lead up to it happening, I'm like, I feel like we're really pushing people into the, believing this.
1: <laughs>
2: again like I don't know I, I did kind of there were certain moments where I was like this is dragging a little bit I'm going to check my phone and so I was like maybe I missed some super chemistry there was one scene it was three seconds long where they had chemistry and I missed it or something I don't know and it's
0: it does do the thing where it's like she teaches him to have fun and he teaches her like like seriousness some ways like it does have like that dynamic but yeah I, I land. I'm i with you I, land. I don't
1: think he teaches her anything which I appreciate Yeah,
0: t- fair but he is and he's just super hot like that's what he's bringing to the role is he's he's just is a hot like guy who looked 40 years old for 30 years Uh,
1: so I grew up like loving the relationship in this movie and in a weird way like I kind of made my peace early with finding the like test passes out and he lets her freak out about it for way too long thing like I have never liked that but was always just like okay whatever okay I guess that's what we do in the 80s. But like weirdly until watching it for today, I was never like struck by how inappropriate it is to like meet someone, you know, you have a meeting with tomorrow, not tell them who you are and then like have kind of a date with them. I'm like, no, 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 no. Why did this not bother me before? What's wrong with me?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think this says so much about how women are socialized, too, because instead of just watching the movie and being like, there's a bunch of plot holes here. I was like, maybe I didn't get it. Like, there was a part of me was like, oh, no, I must have missed something. And it's like, no, there are a bunch of plot holes in this movie that are just like. Wait, no, no, she literally just...
1: I'm just did- a sexy baby. I must have missed something. Exactly.
2: Like, I'm a sexy baby. I can't be taken seriously if I don't understand these plot holes.
1: Yeah. And I also, for the first time, watched What Lies Beneath recently, which I had never seen. I was mm. like, felt like I would seen it because I spent a lot of time in Blockbuster when it came out, I guess. And I feel like those little TVs in the blockbuster, spent an incredible amount of time promoting it, but like that kind of makes me read all of Harrison Ford's roles differently because he like essentially is like showing up and doing what he always does and then spoilers for what lies beneath. He is like just his normal Harrison Ford self and also a murderer and it doesn't feel incongruous <laughs> at all. You're like, yeah, that, yeah.
2: yeah i i I hadn't seen much evidence i think that was it too like having only seen his later movies i hadn't i had a whole conversation with my friend about like was harrison ford a romantic lead like people like thought of him as this like really sexy romantic guy i mean and he's like i get it like he's hot he was a carpenter like I, i i get it but again just
1: watching like the chemistry i'm like interesting
0: that's his whole it's just that he's hot like, I don't think he brings. He's, a, he's charming. Hum-
1: he's like projecting charm out of his pores, but it's not like mixing with anything. Yeah. So she she wakes up. She's like, oh, holy good God in hell. What happened last night? She rushes off to her meeting. Who the fuck should be there? But Jack Trainer, who then is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to tease you about it for a while. But yeah, everything's fine. Nothing happened. You passed out. I carried you up the stairs but I'm interested in you. And she's like, let's just work together. And he's like, "Mm." that's what he says. (laughs) And then essentially we have them putting the deal together and hitting all these hurdles where they keep getting told no by people who are in more junior positions at the company, but Trask himself, once they get through to him at a wedding, they crash really likes the idea. They crash a wedding Tess dances with Trask. Harrison Ford dances with Kathy Geis from 30 Rock. (laughs) Ricky Lake is there for one second. Underutilized.
2: I wanted so much more of her. I am a huge Ricky Lake fan, a
1: huge Ricky Lake supporter. They crashed this wedding whose theme is Caribbean colonialism, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> yep. yeah. And in a line that is, I don't know, I guess delights me, uh, Tess comforts the bride when she comes into the bathroom and she says, her husband says, it looks like Nicaragua, and people are going to think we're making a statement. <laughs> And so they manage to get through to Trask. They, like, schedule a meeting. Like, the big meeting is coming up. It's all coming together. And then Catherine comes home from her broken, like, vacation. And it turns out that Jack Trainer surprise, was the very guy she was trying to get the, to pop the question to. And so there's this, like, slightly farcical thing where... Tess is leaving after setting up Catherine to, like, try and have sex with Jack. Jack wants to break up with her, but can't break up with a gal with a broken leg or something. He has to get to the big meeting. Tess leaves her notebook. Catherine figures out what's going on. She staggers in on her crutches, and she points at Tess in the big meeting and says, that woman is my secretary. Like secretary is a word for like the most horrible kind of criminal a person could even be.
0: And if she can pretend that she knows how to do things, imagine what would happen if your secretaries thought the same thing.
1: We must crush her. (laughs) So it all comes crashing down. Tess is humiliated. This movie is like very, I think, beautifully structured on the whole hero's journey thing. She sadly rides the ferry. The ferry is a character. She's holding a Bud Light. I love that, I love that. She's having one of those New York Transit beers. (laughs) She shows up back at work just to collect her stuff and get comforted by Caroline Aaron, Dr. Marsha. And then everybody just reassembles. They're like, places everybody, we're gonna redo the humiliating ouster. And Trask is there, and we do one of my favorite endings in comedies, the Tartuffe ending, but where the big man on campus shows up and is like, I will mete out justice. I believe that Tess had the idea because she explained to me how she got the idea and Catherine couldn't. And then he fires Catherine from a company he doesn't work at.
0: I love, that was like the one thing I was like, I don't, there's no suspension of disbelief here. I believe that this guy could fire everybody on that floor if you wanted to.
1: Right. I was like, sure. He's like a stakeholder. I don't know how this works. And then he offers Tess a job at his company, entry level, of course. And so she's with Jack now. He packs her a lunch. He gives her Twinkies. He's being business daddy. And she heads off to her new job where at first... She thinks, because she sees her in the office, that Felicity's counselor from Felicity, Amy Aquino, is her boss, and she's the secretary again. But she's not. She has a secretary, and she won't make her secretary bring her coffee, and she's made it. And she has an office on Wall Street, and she's having lunch with the guys from Stratton Oakmont later this week. (laughs) The end. Let the river run. That's the end. (laughs) Beautiful. It's a, it's such a beautiful
2: ending. And I also really love that, you know, it's such a subtle nod to like, when I am in power, I'm going to make damn sure to treat the other women around me differently. I love it. Mm-hmm.
0: What a fucking great movie. Sarah Maybe kicking us off. Can you take us through just a quick journey of like why this was appealing to you at 15?
1: It's the thing I'm always looking for, which is like dumb entertainment that doesn't make you feel dumb. Hmm. Like it feels smart. It feels like care went into it. It's been crafted. There's like touches and costuming that I think, like, you know, this movie has, like, some themes. We've got, like, a Cinderella motif. We've got a Goose Girl motif. Jack is named Trainer. (laughs) We have that, like, lovely moment where he, like, changes his shirt and all the secretaries in his office cheer.
0: That's where I was like, oh, I've seen this movie a hundred (laughs) times.
1: Yeah. Because you've watched TV in a motel before, I'm sure. Totally right. And it's just like, it's like a... Lovely wish fulfillment rom com that both highlights and erases structural inequalities and is like just packed with all these lovely little moments. Which, like, we talk about this all the time, but I think that movies are really made out of moments and plot is an excuse for moments. And it's about our girl getting what she wants. And I love that.
2: <laughs> yeah. And really, in that way, too, taking a lesson from. Sigourney Weaver's book of when she's like, you got to go out and get what you want. And she's like, okay, I will.
0: Sigourney Weaver offers a masterclass in gaslighting. Like she gaslights the fuck out of this person in order to like not just like put her in a point of submission, but be able to harvest her best ideas, Mm. which is fascinating. And it's so tremendously satisfying to watch Melanie Griffith find out that that's what's happening and then just take literally everything Sigourney Weaver has said and no, she's not doing it to like get to get her where like I'm 100% motivated by fuck you and she's like motivated by like wanting to actually advance herself in a healthy way but she does that by taking everything literally this person has been you know manipulating her with and it's so cool it's such a smart thing <laughs>
2: It's so cool because, again, in a, in a real movie, that person would just excel farther and farther and farther up the ladder and, right. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't do anything like that's mostly what happens in our world, you know, and like you just it would become a quote unquote open secret. Like, yeah, that person just like takes everyone's ideas and then you're just like but they're still in like a mansion and they're still untouchable and they're still getting opportunities. Cause it doesn't matter. You know, just
0: don't say ideas around that person. We all know it. And if you do, it's your fault for saying an idea around the person who hasn't gotten taken down for being a serial plagiarist.
2: <laughs> right. It's so, it's so insane, but it's like, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of those, like, wouldn't it be cool if life was remotely like this in many of these situations. Right. Totally. Totally.
0: <laughs> uh, Lane, Lane, as a newcomer to this movie, what stood out, like, what were you expecting maybe? And sort of how, how did it land with you?
2: I think I was like pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Like, like we talked about with the gender dynamics, because it's one of those things where like, it always sucks to see a woman in power with a woman who works for her and to have the woman belittle her and do that thing. Because, you know, you don't want it to become something that's just like, Oh, women can't work together. They're catty. It's like, no, no, no. That's actually not what the overall problem is at all like that's reducing it you know but bring it did such a beautiful job of bringing in like oh but that does happen you know for the reasons we talked about And then I think what saved it for me, too, was that ending of her being able to be like, oh, now I have a female secretary and I am a female boss and I'm going to do things differently with this. I'm not going to take that internalized misogyny. I'm not going to take what was done to me and be like, great, now I get to steal her ideas and push her around. Like, I'm going to do what I wish had been done was like, I thought was really... Lovely and more than I would have expected for nineteen eighty eight. Well,
0: and to that point, I do want to I don't want to take back things that I said earlier about what's not fleshed out, but like I do think that illustrating her doing what you have said, which is saying like, I don't know, we'll make it up as we go. I'm not going to pretend I know the answers. The place I got all the answers from is fucked up. Like being this kind of like workplace is it definitely, you know, it, it shows and doesn't tell necessarily. Like it does a great job of like, by setting up with that ending, acknowledging kind of all of the power dynamics that landed Sigourney Weaver where she was prior. And it doesn't like, Then tell it to you in a sanctimonious way or like give you a weird voiceover to like tie it in a bow for you. Mm -hmm. So, Lane, I'm not quite sure if you're familiar. So usually at this part of the episode, this is leftover from why our dads. We acknowledge one person who is an actual father who was the CEO guy in this movie. Right. What's that guy's name? Mm
1: -hmm. Bosco.
0: Bosco was an actual dad in this movie who, in your view, and please interpret this however you want, is the daddy of this movie.
2: Yeah, I think it was like, yeah, the the boss, the fancy boss man who, like, finally believes her that this was her idea. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's that, like, protector energy. It's that, like, no, I believe her. That makes sense. Let me call you out. Like, there was a real, like... I, did, you, did you lie about my kid? Did you, did you try to screw over my kid? There really was. And not even in like a patronizing way, but in like the way that you would want a dad to be like, Aww. you did this to my daughter? You did this to my daughter? Oh, yeah. Tell me how you thought of the idea. And she can't do it. And he's like, oh, not with my kid. And then he's just like, <laughs> come work for me. You're going to take, you got fire in your belly. Like he's got such great dad energy. I love it.
0: Totally. That's awesome. Sarah. Yes. We know that Bosco was a father Uh who was your daddy of this movie.
1: You know, I guess I feel like I need to emphasize because it's hard to not take it for granted for me, I guess, at this point, that like Tess in this movie has so much composure. She's like routinely in over her head and just kind of like figures it out. And I, she's like clearly like scared a lot of the time, but I think that she does a great job of not letting them smell fear and <laughs> I don't, and well and another thing that occurred to me about this movie kind of in light of the like boom and grifter media we've had recently is that this is totally a grifter's tale yeah and it really taps into like you know as if we didn't know why america loves grifters so much and actually i love this so much i wrote it down so i could get it right Tess has the line, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life working my ass off and getting nowhere just because I followed rules that I had nothing to do with setting up. So good. And in the kind of final conversation with Daddy Bosco, she's like, well, you can only bend the rules if you're on top. And like, you can't, from my position, you can't buy into the game without bending the rules, basically. It's not her exact language. And just like how she's also given lines where she's able to basically like, explain to anyone who's willing to listen, which is not that many people like why this was necessary for her. And I think probably in America, we love grifter stories for so many reasons. But one of them is that grifting to some extent is honestly the only way to have your ideas taken on merit for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I was really I can't believe we haven't talked about that yet, but I was I loved that line. I loved Mm -hmm. her explanation to the boss about how that happened. It speaks to our conversation we had about American gangster. Mm -hmm. It speaks to when the country or the culture has decided that you are illegitimate, you have to often engage in business in illegitimate ways until Mm -hmm. you have the power you need to suddenly have legitimacy. Um, And that is what we see this person ultimately do. In a lot of ways, it's like a workplace romantic comedy, although it's not a comedy. Also, which is well, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's
1: a dramedy possibly. It's yeah,
0: it's got a lot of levity for what it is. This movie ultimately has the same amount of profound things to say about like how people who are not welcome into work cultures have to leverage illegitimacy mm-hmm. into legitimacy. Yeah. In a way that like Goodfellas does.
1: Yeah. This <laughs> yeah. would pair well with Goodfellas. It would pair well with The Godfather.
0: With what's the series about the blood lady? <laughs> the dropout. The, the dropout. Drop
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, the blood lady. It's this like series. Alex. When you think about it, any lady is a blood lady because we're all just chock full of blood. If you find not a blood lady, you're in trouble, my friend. <laughs>
0: Well, okay. So my daddy for what it's worth is just two Harrison Ford moments. It's the shirt moment yep. when he's undoing his shirt and realizes that everyone's watching him. It's great. Again, it's great. Cause you just get this like very brief window into Harrison Ford, having a mm-hmm. sense of humor. And then the scene where, where that I described earlier, where he comes out and is trying to like blow smoke to, uh, up to the wife to be so that they can get out of the room. There are these very funny, like slapstick moments that he handles subtly in a way that like, I just don't, I don't know, my whole life I've kind of felt like Harrison Ford is a dad who's like a little angry at me and it's nice to see him in this other way.
1: Yeah, I think he's a little <laughs> angry at all of us, but I like it when he drinks that drink.
0: Yes, same. So right? when he drinks the full, when he has the two drinks, cause he got one for yes. her and he yeah. drinks an entire Mai Tai by himself and then goes on to the next Mai
1: Tai. That's great. Just, just give him some props. He's a prop yeah. comic.
0: He is. He's a real carrot top. well this was super fun we'll do this again it was so great to have you yes
1: we'll grab you back for another one yeah absolutely it's so nice meeting you guys as people too yeah it was
0: so awesome to have you lane thank you so much
1: so much this was so great
0: all right everybody that's it that's this week's episode thank you so much to miranda zickler for editing thank you to carolyn Kendrick, for editing and producing this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the transitions on the show sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for listening. You, thank you out there. Everybody who listens and makes this possible by, by wanting to hear us talk about feelings by way of talking about movies. How lucky are we? You are good. We appreciate you. Again, we have a bonus episode coming out next week. You can get that by subscribing on Patreon or via Apple subscriptions. And next week, we're going to talk about Rushmore with Josh Gondelman. That is great news. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. You are good.